Hello, and welcome to Love the Game, Live the Dream. Join me, your host, Nick Holmes, and my array of guests as we prove to you that you don't have to be a Hall of Fame player, a first-round draft pick, or even a high school standout, for that matter, to have a successful career in the sport of baseball. This podcast is brought to you by World Baseball Experience. Love the Game, Live the Dream is an entertaining yet insightful look at some of the baseball world's brightest and most talented minds. You're going to hear the life stories, struggles, and triumphs of everyday coaches, scouts, executives, and even entrepreneurs that are making their mark in baseball and in life by pursuing their passion and love of the greatest game on earth. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy Love the Game, Live the Dream. Hey gang, and welcome back to the show. I appreciate you guys tuning in to another episode of Love the Game, Live the Dream. I am excited to introduce today's guest. This is a man that I hold very high on my list of influential people, not only in baseball, but in life. His name is Rick Mignante, and Rick and I go back to about 2008, where we met through a mutual friend. At the time, I was uh, running a, a successful baseball academy, but I was at a crossroads in my career where I wasn't quite sure if I wanted to get into coaching at the college level or maybe the professional level or into scouting. And so Rick and I were able to uh, get together. We had a few conversations. Uh, we, we had a few Malbecs and a few Cabernets and a few beers over some time and uh, got to know each other. And uh, I just knew he was a guy that I could learn an absorbent amount of information from. And so we became friends. And at one point, I just decided, I, I asked my wife, I said, I think I'm going to ask Rick to be my mentor. And she said, you should. So I did. And he graciously accepted. And it just proves, again, uh, to the people listening on this podcast, you cannot be afraid to ask people for help. If there's someone out there that you look up to or someone is doing the things that you want to do, whether it's in baseball or your personal life or professional, whatever it is, ask for help. Uh, You're going to find out more times than not that they are more than willing to to help you out. So that's how Rick and I um, became friends. And we have been for about the last decade now. And like I said, you're going to hear a great interview about a man who has been in and out and back into baseball a couple of different times. He wasn't sure quite where his path was going to lead him at certain points of his life. He spent 15 years running an insurance company and raising his family before getting back into it. And now he has spent the better part of four decades as a professional coach, uh, scout, and currently the, he's going into his third spring training season with the Stockton Ports, which is the uh, Class A affiliate for the Oakland Athletics. So sit back, relax, and without further ado, I hope you enjoy my interview with Rick Mignante. Hey, Rick, how's it going, buddy? Hey, Nikki, it's great to hear from you, my friend. Yeah, I'm happy to be here and... Uh... See what's going on on your podcast. So cool, man. I've had you at the top of my list since I um, came up with this idea for the podcast. And so I'm really, really glad that we were able to hook up here in the off season. I had a chance to work out the kinks a little bit with a few other episodes. So I'm ready for you now, buddy. All right. Well, I'm, I'm happy to be here. So let's uh, roll it out. You got it. Well, I always like to start at the beginning, like all good stories. And if you could share with the audience a little bit about where you're from and where you grew up and how you first got your, uh, your, your love of baseball. Well, I'm a boomer. So uh, that's the start. 1947, December 12th, Los Angeles, California. I'm okay. fortunate enough to say that I'm truly a native 
of Los Angeles and California. Uh, people don't believe there's natives in the state, but we're here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, moved to the San Fernando Valley in 1950. And uh, my first uh, introduction to baseball is a next door neighbor of ours uh, had a sporting goods and, and uh, toy concern. He was a wholesaler. And he brought home one day a trapper's mitt, which was cutting edge at the time in terms of glove technology and modernization. And my dad bought me my first Spalding glove. It was a five-finger fielder's glove. And that was my first introduction to baseball. Uh, And from that point forward, uh, I pretty much kept my head down and my eyes up and moved down that path as a kid that grew up at a time in America where it was our national pastime. And as far as far as youth was concerned, it truly was the only youth sport. There, there was no Pop Warner. There was no basketball. There was no soccer. It was just Little League Baseball. So uh, that whole infrastructure of Little League Baseball, Babe Ruth Baseball, high school, American Legion College, and then eventually uh, professional baseball was, was the, the path of matriculation for me. Did you know right away at a young age there that that was the path you wanted to go on? Or uh, were you just a, a kid with a new glove that was out in the uh, the yard playing with all the other guys and just, you know, enjoying life? Yeah, the latter. That was probably it. Uh-huh. You know, I, did, I mm-hmm. didn't know immediately that this is what I'd end up doing uh, or that it was going to be a career path. But but I knew that I loved the bat and the ball and playing catch and throwing it off the garage door and just trying to find somebody in the neighborhood to hang out with that you could uh, – you could play the game a little bit. And then, of course, you know, at eight years old, an introduction into Little League in like 1955, I believe, uh, was my first uh, foray into organized sports. And uh, then it became a lot more important. The team, the competition, the uniform, uh, all those things that make you feel kind of special when you're eight to 12 years old, a couple of times a week really enhance my my passion for the game and and my desire to to be as good as I possibly could. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I don't know about the listeners, but all I'm picturing right now is Sandlot. You know, the <laughs> the movie with the kids getting together and out at the local field and the you know just the one ball and the one bat and you know back when it was just a game, right? Yeah, that was so pretty much it. You know, a lot, a lot of street ball. You know, and then yeah. the Sandlot thing is is a good a good comparison, uh, you know, a, a good model, because even back in the day, my first year in Little League, I, I, I was eight years old. I, I played on the Green Dodgers in Sherman Oaks Little League. And if you were in the minors, you didn't get a uni. You, you wore your jeans and you cuffed them up, a couple, maybe a double roll, high top black heads, a T-shirt that had the Little League logo on it and a ball cap. And that was the minor leagues. So it was really kind of like Sandlot when we went out to play. But when you got to the majors, if you got to that level, then you got the full uni. You know, the light wools, the small stirrup stockings, the rubber, little league cleats. And even back then, you know, when you see how much we've far we've come in terms of protection and safety in the game, we just had these like pressed cardboard little headgears that fit right over our are cotton caps. There were no helmets at the time. So I've got some pictures of those, which is pretty unique. That'll take you back. Yeah, right, right. That's awesome. Well, you know, and I mean, it wasn't 
hadn't progressed too much even when I played uh, in the in the 70s because we were same with you. We didn't get those uniforms until I think it was 11 years old, which was the minors then just before the majors. But uh, we also started a little bit younger. I think we started at six or seven. But I remember wearing those jeans the first couple of years as well. And the uh, just the T-shirt with the, you know, uh, Anderson's uh, Amico or Standard Station <laughs> sponsorship on the back or Pizza Hut or whatever it was. And uh, yeah, those were those were good times. It was great because it really gave you something to look forward to. I remember telling my mom, I'm not quitting this game till I get that full uniform. <laughs> so uh, it gave you something to shoot for. That's that's uh, awesome. That's right. Sponsorship was interesting back then because uh, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, I remember I remember I played on a team called the Twinks. T-W-I-N-K-S. And everybody goes, well, you know, why, why didn't, why weren't you the Pirates or the A's or the Yankees or the Cubs? And a lot of the teams really kind of f- fell along the names based on maybe what the, the sponsorships were. But the Twinks uh, were the little stars, okay? The twinkly little stars, because at that time there was no Major League Baseball in Los Angeles, and our local team was the Hollywood Stars that played at Gilmore Field over where the Grove is now, over by CBS Studio Center. So we were the little stars. So we called ourselves the Twinks. And that's an interesting name. And we were Eddie Lewis, as I recall, was a woman's clothing up at a high end women's clothing store on Ventura Boulevard, Sherman Oaks. And they were our sponsors. So that's a little bit about sponsorship and team names back in the day when really Little League was in its infancy. Yeah. Now the sponsors have changed to, uh, you know, big colorful signs out on the the fence of the the field they're playing on and the kids get to put their names on their back and uh, numbers and all that stuff. Uh, big, big difference. So as you're growing up, let's fast forward a little bit. You're into high school, probably getting bet. Well, not probably. I'm sure you're, you're evolving in the game as a player. W- at what point did you, you know, either decide or think, you know, I think I could play this game even at the next level and tell me a little bit about the family support or, or lack thereof, if, if, if needed. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, c- certainly, you know, you hope you're getting better, but like every athletic endeavor that we enter into, we had golf, baseball, tennis, bowling, archery, what, whatever it is about, you, you realize at an early age that to be consistent in your performance is what is difficult. So on a given day, you're a world beater. Uh, and on the next day, uh, you're feeling like you're at the bottom of the list and the 10th guy to get picked on a team. So at an early age, I realized how difficult the game was and how humbling it could be. And, uh, you know, I struggled with that a little bit. Uh, my expectations were probably a little bit unrealistic in terms of what I thought I was capable of. So many times I would get angry and frustrated, which kind of thwarted uh, my progress as I move forward. I, th- I guess my my best ally uh, and my worst enemy were myself. So once I started to realize that uh, it was going to be a little harder than I thought, the competition was increasing. Uh, but my my eye was still on the goal at that time, which was fairly short sighted to to either make the JV team in high school my first year, and then to make varsity my next year, and then to be an all league performer and. All those things that you're hoping that performance will um, allow you to become in terms of accomplishments and recognition. Uh, I always had that carrot dangling out there. And as long as I didn't beat myself, uh, I gave myself a much better chance to be successful. Right, right. And 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 how was uh, mom and dad during all this? Were they involved with, you know, baseball career up to this point? Or were they busy with their own lives and doing stuff? That's else? a good question, because. 
at that time, you know, in, in America, um, dads were working and, and, and moms were home taking care of the, the house and the children and doing all the domestic things that were required of them and, and with their roles really reflected at that time in our society. So a lot of kids that I played with really never had an opportunity to have their dad come and see them play, certainly in the week. Maybe on the weekend the parents could get out, but 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 I was the, I I was the opposite of that. My my parents were loving, supportive, encouraging, and really were there for me. Uh, sometimes to a fault, uh, because there was a lot of insulation mm-hmm. and there was a lot of praise, and sometimes there is subjectivity that creeps into that evaluation where your parents see you as something more than you are or dream like you do to be wanting you to be what you want to be and not really having an objective eye as to what your true talent is. But the bottom line is I had the support and love of my parents. My dad was an avid, avid amateur photographer. So as a kid growing up in the 50s and the 60s, my dad was pretty much every game with a 35 millimeter and a photo lens, a telephoto lens. And not a lot of kids had their dads at the ballpark taking pictures. So my dad became everybody's best friend after a while because it was, hey, Mr. Mignate, can, can you take a picture of me too? And then we'd go home and they'd be black and whites and we'd turn the bathroom in our home into a dark room. We'd develop the negatives. Uh, then we'd print them out and then we'd put them uh, on the enlarger and then we'd put them on the heater. And at the end of the evening, I'd have photos of myself playing that very day, which seemed very quick and very fast and very at my fingertips kind of like what we have today with, of course, our, our iPhones and the, and the photos and the videos that parents can take right now and, and relive the event at, at, di- at the dinner table. So uh, overall, my parents were there for me throughout my baseball career, and I wouldn't have had the success that I had, whatever that is, uh, if it weren't for the love and the devotion of my parents. So I'm very grateful for that support. And I think every kid uh, probably has a chance to maybe be a little better if they have that support as they're growing up. Right. Parents are a little bit different these days, though. Wouldn't you agree? I would. You mentioned a little bit. Yeah, you mentioned a little a little bit about that with the parents back in those days, not having the time to uh, to come watch kids play. And now I feel like it's it's almost the opposite where not only do they make the time, they put in too much time and uh, we get terms like helicopter parents. Yeah, I think it, there's right? a, you know, back then the prioritization was to go out and earn a living for your family and, and maintain a lifestyle. And that came first and foremost. I mean, I'm, my dad's working. He's not coming to the ball. Game. I played with a lot of guys. My dad's never seen me play. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh my gosh, I feel sorry for you. That That's unfortunate, you know. Uh, or also maybe the, 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 the thinking at that time, which was you, you can't make a live and play in this game. You know, you, you need to go to college. You need to be take a professional path to a career. This is this is a sport. This is a, an activity. But th- this isn't where you need to go. We need to concentrate on something else. So the prioritization was different back then, whereas now the prioritization is, is Johnny can be a really good player. We can get him into college. He can get a scholarship and we can kill two birds with one stone. And I guess theoretically that's a good idea, but if you put that kind of pressure on your child at 8, 10, 11 years old, you might snuff out the, uh, the, the flame that, that drives his little engine, that little hearth to want to be that guy because uh, all of a sudden we become very myopic in our thinking as parents and we see this is the path. And when it doesn't become realization, then you've got some frustration with children. You've got some disappointment with parents and it can create, you know, problems in the, in the family that you never thought, you know, 
when when you bought your kid his first glove and mm-hmm. signed him up for tryouts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Speaking of college, let's uh, jump to the next phase of uh, your young baseball career. How did it play a part going into getting your education or your higher education? And what were your thoughts um, going forward uh, after that? Well, I, I got to the crossroads, you know, my at the end of my high school career. And, and I had a couple of scouts that were interested in signing me directly out of high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was not much in the way of a bonus involved, but there was interest to sign. Uh, but again, my parents realized, I guess, and, and, and helped me in that respect to make the decision that put education first and professional baseball on the back burner and utilize the college game as another stepping stone to uh, advance your career, improve your skills, become a better player, become more physically and mentally mature. So at the end of three years, maybe that opportunity would present itself again. And it did. So by choosing education first, which was the best choice for me at that time, and getting three years into a four-year degree before I was drafted, that, that really that, that, that would really kind of put me in a much better position so that when I did go out I was in a better place in my life and a little older, a little bit more mature to take upon the responsibilities and the challenges of what professional baseball presented at that time. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So moving into your professional career uh, as a player, I know you you always like to say, I've heard you say in the past, a uh, couple of auspicious years uh, in pro ball and, and then into a career uh, in baseball. Tell us a little bit about that, how that got how that got started? Well, I just, you know, I, I, I went out my first year and, 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 and I, I failed miserably and, uh, my self-esteem, my confidence, uh, everything was eroded. Uh, and, uh, I came back the following year and, uh, they said, uh, we want to bring you back as a pitcher rather than a position player. And at the time I, you know, I had some domestic crises, uh, and issues that I had to deal with that were equally as important to, to my life uh, going forward as baseball was. And so I opted not to take that path and try to convert and, and make a position change uh, to become a pitcher. I, I kind of looked realistically at, I said, how many guys that are five foot nine that are right-handed actually pitch in the big leagues? And the question back then probably would be a few, whereas today, it, probably not. Uh, so I tried to look at it objectively, tried to, uh, weigh my responsibilities and obligations as well that I had taken on in, 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 a, in, a, in my personal life. And, and I decided that it would probably be better for me to move on, uh, take my pig slip and, and check out the, 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 the private sector, the real world and, and see what I could do. And because I was young and 22 years old and married and had a child at the time, uh, there weren't many alternatives. It was like, go find a job and, uh, maybe a career path and, and see what you can do to, to move your family and, and your future forward. And that's what I did. And uh, I spent 10 years in the private sector uh, learning about the real world. Uh, and I would say that uh, truly my background in athletics uh, helped me to compete, uh, overcome challenges and adversities, and uh, realize some kind of mod- modicum of success in, 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 in the real world. And uh, I did that for 10 years. Uh, and then I had an opportunity uh, to re-enter baseball at the professional level, and uh, I sat back and thought about the decision. Financially, it did not behoove me at all. 
but in terms mm-hmm. of what I thought I really wanted to do and what my passion uh, was, which was baseball and my love for the game, uh, I felt that I truly owed it to myself to to veer off the the road I was on and and, and make a right hand turn and take another path and see how it worked out and and, and that was nineteen uh, nineteen eighty one and uh, I never looked back. I've been in the game ever since. And, and so, just so uh, everybody can understand where you're at uh, in your family life as well, uh, you're married with uh, kids, and I'll explain a little bit about. It. So, when you take that right turn, you've spent ten years. You haven't been in baseball. Uh, you're in insurance, correct? Correct. And so you're. Let's, for, for lack of a better term, a, a normal guy out there with a job and a family that you're trying to support and you're putting in the hours. And but you've got this little voice in the back of your head that's saying, man, I really miss baseball. And, you know, how can I get into it? Did you go looking for it right away or did you was it kind of it one was, of those, I don't know, coincidental happenings was, or it was kind um, of serendipitous, really? I mean, talking about a young family, I had a, I had a young family and I had a boy who was uh, a T-baller. So I signed him up for T-ball and uh, I became a dad, uh, a little league dad. And as he progressed uh, through the, the ranks of little league, uh, I, I stayed with him. And there were opportunities for me to coach, not so much my son, but uh, older kids, high school kids, American Legion players, high school players uh, as my own little um, uh, niche. And I found that I really enjoyed the the, the, the coaching aspect of it and that I really missed the game. And um, uh, a buddy of mine who was instrumental in my career, also in my life growing up, um, decided that in like 1978, he was going to have a Christmas holiday baseball camp for three days. And we were going to send out flyers at the local uh, facility that we were a part of and see what kind of response we could get. So it was overwhelming. Uh, I don't know. We might have had 80 to 100 kids who came out for this three-day camp. And I'd have to say we were really at that point on the cutting edge of what is today uh, instruction, uh, strength and weightlifting conditioning, all these subsects of baseball outside the professional game that grew into like a boutique business, as you well know, lessons, baseball schools, travel teams, and all of that stuff began to burgeon. So I was at the beginning of that, and I was getting my my uh, my fix, my baseball fix, through my son and through, um, for lack of a better word, extracurricular baseball activities that I could get involved with, uh, and that kind of mm-hmm. that, that, that kind of lit the pilot for me again. And I thought, geez, what can I do here? How can I maybe get back into the game? And that's kind of how it, it, it started for me when I could say, maybe there's something I could do. And my aspiration was to, to be on the field. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so uh, I started to work at that time in 78, 79 uh, uh, as, as a associate scout for the Milwaukee Brewers. And they would bring me to spring training and instructional league. Uh, and I would get to know the players. And I spent two or three weeks every year with the short season club for a couple of years in the Pioneer League. So now, really, uh, I kind of had my feet on the ground. I was dealing with professional players. I was learning how to evaluate uh, the skill set, the tools, the makeup of amateurs and project what kind of player I thought they might be if 
they were good enough to get to the big leagues. So it evolved slowly. Uh, but at some and if point, I could go ahead. Just jump in real quick. I want to say, I just want to make sure you're still uh, in the insurance business, right? You're still having to, you're not ready to quit your, your day job, right? You're still doing that? Or have you jumped full, t- full time into, into baseball? No, that's a good question. Because it, it, for the people that your audiences, it's like, how do I get into the game? How do I give up right. what I'm doing yes. and make this transition into an industry for the listeners mm-hmm. that really does not pay? Right. I mean, b- bottom line is the owners, the executives and the players at the big league level are the people who are truly the earners. Right. The, the, the people at the minor league levels, at the affiliate level in the minor leagues, uh, the, the scouts, uh, the, the minor league managers, coaches, pitching instructors, trainers, strength and conditioning people, they're not killing it financially. Right. So to make that transition, you really need to say – if it's going to be a financial step down and it's a, a, a lifestyle changing um, a moment uh, when your family is impacted by that, uh, you better hope that you have the support of them. Uh, because yeah. once you throw yourself and immerse yourself in the baseball world uh, and you're passionate about it and you might even be a little OCD about it, uh, but you're not making any money that can create some, some issues in the, your home life. And uh, yeah. it, it did for me. And, and that, that that's real about that. But I, I hung on to that business to answer your question yes. for like the first two or three years. So I could actually supplement my, my income with a little bit of baseball income and have mm-hmm. my insurance business kind of hold its own too. But after right. a point in time, you realize that you've, you've reached a point of diminishing return. And mm-hmm. if you, you, you can't be successful in the real world, if you're not giving a hundred percent to what you're doing, and you mm-hmm. can't be successful in the baseball world if you're splitting time as well. So it was Fisher cut bait. And so mm-hmm. after three years of trying to keep, you know, both both balls in the air, I made a decision that I would walk away from the insurance business financially um, detrimental as it might be and set my course for a career in baseball and just see how far I might be able to go. Mm-hmm. And it's taken you quite a ways now. How many years uh, since that since that day you made that decision now? Well, I went to work professionally as a full-time scout in November of 1981. And wow. I'm here uh, in 2018 looking mm-hmm. forward to the upcoming season as the manager of, of the Stockton Ports in the California League as the affiliate of the Oakland A's. So you do the math. It's been a while. That's right. Yeah, that's great. No, that's fantastic. And so that brings me to my next spot here. So because you you've worn a couple of hats, uh, as you mentioned, when you first started out, all you kept thinking about was, you know, back in those days when you were coaching those Legion guys, you know, I just want to be on the field. And and I know from experience of, of, of uh, you know, being friends with you for the last uh, eight or 10 years that I know that's where your your heart is. But your first job was actually in scouting. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about that, how the differences in wearing those two hats. And I know this is unique because not too many guys get the opportunity to do what you did, which was scout players, sign them, and then get to go coach them in the short season. Correct. That's correct. That's correct. Um, yeah, I, which is I, fantastic. I thought I, thought I was great. wanted, I wanted to be on the field and, uh, mm-hmm. I thought I had kind of reached a, a kind of a verbal agreement with the brewers at that time that, kind of working for free 
Um, uh, but getting the opportunity to have exposure to the game and have a better understanding of what it was going to take to be that field manager or hitting coach or whatever it might be. Um, and, and, and looking at that, I, I, I realized that's, that's really what I wanted to do. And I, I felt the Brewers were on the same page, but when push came to shove and they had to make a hire, they didn't hire me for that managing job. And I had mm-hmm. to take a step back and go, okay, so I've, I've put in my time. I've, 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 I've done everything pretty much pro bono. My first, you know, re-entry into professional baseball. Uh, I think I've cut my teeth a little bit and I'm, I'm not a kid, you know, I'm in my mm-hmm. mid to late thirties and, um, what, what am I going to do now? I, it was my first real stumbling block and I had to decide how I was going to continue in professional baseball if it wasn't going to be on the field with the Brewers. And right. the scouting bureau, which you're familiar with, which at the time was wow. a an independent agency that provided scouting for all 30 big league teams, uh, in addition to their own uh, personal scouts uh, that each, 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 each big league organization had, um, had an opening in Southern California. And my friend said, I, I think you should apply for the job. And I go, I've never scouted. You know, I mean, uh, really, I mean, I've never scouted. So, yeah, I've played and I've coached some high schoolers here in the last few years. But, you know, I've never gone out and given a professional, real professional evaluation on on a high school player. But his his advice was sound and I would – I would put it out there to anybody uh, in terms of people who aspire to get into the game. He said to me, he said, no matter where you are in the game, whether you're a a minor league manager or coach, uh, whether you're a a big league manager or coach, whether you're a front office executive uh, on the development side, um, you, you have to know the commodity. You have to know talent, for lack of a better word. And not only have you have to know talent, you have to know how to identify talent at an early age, how to project that talent to a point where you know that that, that talent is going to allow that particular player to reach a certain level or fall short of the mark. So he said, just get in the game. Uh, get into the game professionally. It's a small business, and it still is. There's There's 30 employers. That's all you got. So... Um, make a, a reputation for yourself. But once you get in, you learn how to scout, you look at players every day, uh, you will have, you will develop credibility. And if you're, if you're keen enough with your eyesight and your insight and your ability to truly evaluate players and project the ones that you think have the best chance of playing in the big leagues, you'll build a reputation. And I also realized as I continued to do that, that there were organizations that would allow their scouts to wear two hats. By that, I mean, uh, I scout from, you know, November to June draft. The draft comes, we sign the players. Then every team has short season clubs that play a season that begins after the draft and goes approximately 70 games. And many organizations would bring scouts uh, from the amateur levels to be a coach on that short season team, because again, economics played into it. They didn't want to hire anybody else and have to pay more money. So they would utilize a scout for that short season. So there were organizations that would allow you to cross over. There were other organizations whose philosophy was, we don't want the two to mix. You scout, 
you evaluate, you develop, you coach. So I was lucky enough in 87 to take a job with the Detroit Tigers as an area scout in Southern California. And they needed a, a manager in the short season in Bristol, Virginia, in the Appalachian League. So I got my I got my wish. I finally got back in the field in 87. I scouted the area in the Los An- greater Los Angeles area. Once the draft was over, I went to Bristol, Virginia. I managed the uh, Rookie League affiliate there for two years. And then the third year, I went to Niagara Falls to the uh, the next level, short season A-ball. And I managed the uh, Niagara Falls Rapids for a year there. So my back to my original premise, which was any way you can get into the game for any of the people that are out there, whether it's the front office, it's scouting, take your take your route in. It might not be the path that you think is where you ultimately want to go, but once you're in the network, once you're in the circle and you can meet and, and show people uh, what your capabilities are and, and what your strengths are, then you have an opportunity then to kind of define your path and, and create maybe a little bit of a more narrow focus, which I was able to do and achieve not only the professional designation for lack of a better word of of being a a big league evaluator and also a professional manager so it worked out ideally for me and and you know i'm very blessed and grateful uh, for how it's gone that's incredible and so from 87 to just recently i just want to share with the listeners uh rick continued to do that dual um job description as, as scout and then, and then manager, scout coach. And, and from, you mentioned Detroit. And then when did you get involved with Oakland? Cause you've been with Oakland the longest, correct? Right. I began with Oakland in 1995 and I had, okay, some, so, I had some road bumps along the way. I'll say one thing about baseball for, for you young guys who are listening and kind of get a better idea of what's really involved. If you want to take that path, you're going to get fired. Yeah, everybody gets fired yeah. in baseball, and it's not always a function. It's the real world too. It's always a function sure. of the fact that you didn't do a good job, or that you're not capable, or you, you stubbed your toe along the way. It, it's just a function of the dynamics of business. Things change at the top. GMs get fired. Uh, new new player development directors come into play. New scouting directors come into play, and everything moves. And, mm-hmm. and maybe it's just a function of a, a regime change. You've been with a team for three or four years doing a good job, but they want somebody else. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're out of a job. So I, 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 I ran that gamut from about 1989 to approximately 1993 is where mm-hmm. I kind of hit my ups and downs in terms of working for organizations, be it originally the Bureau, subsequently Detroit. Uh, then I went to Cleveland and then to San Diego. And then finally in 95, I landed on my feet in Oakland. And I'm proud to say that I've been here for like 22 years now. And mm-hmm. that's pretty good. Not yeah. a lot of people last that long with one organization, but the, the, right. the A's have been great to me and, and it, it's, it, it's been a very good fit. But there will be some ups and downs and you yeah. will scratch your head wondering, why am I not being renewed this year? And it's just the way it goes. Was there ever a time during those ups and downs that 
well, this is kind of two part here. Was there were there any times there where you decided I better go back and get another job? Otherwise, because I don't know when this next offer is going to come. Or did you just keep plugging? Did you just, you know, were you able to survive long enough until that next job came? Well, yes and no. Um, okay. In uh, in 93, uh, I was hired by the Cleveland Indians to scout Southern California. Uh, I got a two-year deal to begin with them. And less than a year into it, the gentleman who hired me was fired. Mm-hmm. And a new, a new scouting director came into place. And at the end of two <laughs> years, uh, I got a call saying that uh, we're, we're going in a different direction. And we, you know, you won't, we won't be renewing your contract. So I thought to myself, you know, I've, I've invested a lot of time in this. I'm not quite sure wh- what I've done wrong or what I, what levels I haven't reached that I would actually lose my job. And, and mm-hmm. I, I was upset and I, and I was disappointed. And uh, I, I thought to myself, geez, it's a lot of hours in this job. There's a lot of dedication. There's a lot of driving there's a lot of time away from home and your family. And is it, you know, now that I've, now that I've been here, done that, is it really what I want? And you can, you mm-hmm. can relate to this, uh, being in the yes. business that you've been in and et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I, I was approached, uh, it, it's kind of, it's kind of coincidental. It's a little anecdotal. I was approached by a young player that I had managed in Italy in 1990 when I went there for a year to manage in their professional leagues and he told me, I'm going to buy a baseball school in Agoura, California, and I'm going to build it up. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to put satellites all over Southern California, and we're going to make a lot of money. And I thought to myself, well, I'm not making a lot of money right now. And uh, <laughs> that sounds good. Uh, and yeah. it's baseball. And if I invest the same energy and passion and love for the game that I have for the professional sport, maybe financially I'll come out ahead. So I took the offer uh, to go to work for this young guy. And this young guy is now the head of uh, baseball talent at CAA and recently represented Otani in his signing with the Angels. So it's, it's a pretty interesting world. He subsequently built the, built the business, built the satellite schools, sold them all off, and then segued into the agency business and has become extremely successful doing that. So I took his I, I took the offer to 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 leave and go to work as kind of a regional director to, to develop this 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 baseball school. But I was lucky because I got a call from the San Diego Padres and they said, look, uh, we're looking for an area scout here in Southern California, full time job. And for the first time in my life, I said, you know what, I'm going to have to rethink it. I just came out of the game. I'm a little demoralized. I'm not sure that it's really going in the direction I want. And I know I've given it a chance. So I'm going to try this other venture and I'm going to see if, if that doesn't work better. So the scouting director accepted my uh, my position. And about a month later, he called me back and he goes, hey, um, we're going to bring in a guy from the Midwest to, to scout Southern California. And he's never scouted before. He's never been to Southern California before in his life. So he doesn't know the area, doesn't know the school, doesn't know the coaches, doesn't know the players, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Would you be willing to take a part-time position with us and kind of mentor him and uh, get him oriented into the into what's going on here in Southern California? And I thought, well, sure, that's a great job. I pick up a couple extra bucks. 
I, I, I keep my foot in the game a little bit. I, I'm at the ballparks. I'm seen by other teams and organizations. And, and, and maybe this will work out. So I was fortunate enough uh, to be able to do that for two years with the Padres. And then when I realized that although this on paper, this, this baseball school thing sounded good, in terms of real dollars, it wasn't really panning out financially. So that's what I said. You know what? Let's 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 retry this again. Let's let's reset. Let's put together a resume, send it out, uh, look for a scouting job once again, and see what happens. So in November of 1995, I was hired by the Oakland Athletics to become the area scout in Southern California. And I never brought up any discussion about getting on the field, uh, seeing if I could, you know, work as a coach or a manager in the short season. Just got to put my nose to the grindstone. I was back in the game. Uh, there was an opportunity here in Oakland uh, to, 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 to create a, a name and a position for myself and just go forward with the scouting. And, and I did that for five years. But I was lucky that Oakland had a favorable opinion of combining scouting and development, as I mentioned to you earlier in, in the talk. They would take scouts during the summer and bring them into the short season clubs to, to assist the manager. So after about five years, I felt confident enough to, to speak to our director of player development and say, hey, look, you know, if, if, if you're ever looking for a, a short season manager or hitting coach, I, I'd be happy to be considered for that role. And so I sent it out there and, and, and didn't do much more about it. And then in 2005, I was asked to participate in uh, uh, Major League Baseball's international amateur program in Italy. And I went to a place called Terenia, where Major League Baseball put on a one-month clinic for what they considered the best young players between the ages of maybe 16 and 20 in, in Europe and the African nations. And so I went over there for a month with Jim Lefevre and Bruce Hurst and participated in this international program. Uh, and uh, interesting kid that was there at that time was a kid that got to the big leagues later with the Mariners. It was a kid by the name of Alex Liddy. And they had some kids over there that could play a little bit. And once the, uh, the, the academy was finished, uh, I came back home to the States. And in October, I got a call from one of the representatives from uh, Major League Baseball on the international side. And he said, um, I might have a, a, a job for you. I said, how's that? He says, well, they're going to have the first world baseball classic, the inaugural in 2006. And uh, South Africa, the nation needs a manager. And we'd like for you to be that guy. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Um, and I said, well, when, when is, you know, when does it begin? They said, well, the, the tournament will begin in March. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm a full-time scout for the A's and that's a very busy period in the spring for us just prior to the June draft. I said, I would love to do it. You, you've got me, but you're going to have to run it by the, the, the upper echelon at Oakland. And at the winter meetings in that year, um, Major League Baseball spoke with Billy Bean and, and David Forst and the, and the, and the powers that be in Oakland and asked if they they would give permission for me to be able to do that. And they did. And that kind of turned my life around a little bit again. I was back on the field. And we trained at Papago Park, uh, the first baseball classic, 
in Scottsdale uh, as, a, as, as a nation, while spring training was going on there as well for our minor league complex at our minor league complex. And I got an opportunity, I guess, to show my wares on the field in front of our development people. They never knew what I knew or what I didn't know. Was I able to organize? Was I a capable leader? Oh, was I able to structure things? And once the uh, the inaugural baseball classic was over in 2006, our director of player development, Keith Lippman, came to me and said, would you be interested in managing our short season club in Vancouver, Canada uh, in 2006? And I said, you don't have to ask twice. And so from 2006 to 2013, I continued to scout my area in Southern California up and through the draft. And then I went to Vancouver for five years and managed the team there and then we moved our affiliation to Vermont in the New York Penn League, and I went there for three years and continued to, to manage in the short season. And then in 2014, I, I made the jump full time uh, to development and took on our affiliate as the manager in 2014 in Beloit in the Midwest League. And now up to speed, I will be in my fourth season at Stockton in the California League. So that's kind of my story and how it went, and it wasn't smooth, and it wasn't easy, but who, whoever said it wasn't going to be hard? So for, for everybody who's listening out there, I mean, I have and, – and the reality is I've never made it to the big leagues. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm a minor leaguer. Uh, I'm a professional baseball player and a professional baseball man, I can say at this point in my life. But even though I've not gotten to the big leagues, it, it, for all intents and purposes – Everything I've hoped and dreamed of and wanted to do as I've matured and become an adult and seen myself more as an enabler, a mentor, a leader, a coach, a teacher, the gratification and intrinsic value that I've gained from these experiences over close to 40 years, I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. Right. Think just you just in that last little bit of the story, I just realized something. Had the South African team not been able to practice at Papago in front of the eyes of the Oakland development staff, do you think that that could have changed something for you in the sense that maybe you wouldn't have got the opportunity to do the dual hat uh, coaching and scouting? Do you think about that at all? Yeah, I think timing is everything in life. I think yeah. it's, a, it's a cliche, but you can hold on to it because cliches for the most part are true. Are That's true. why they're cliches. Exactly. And, <laughs> and I think timing is, is everything. Uh, maybe if we'd have trained in Florida and they'd have never seen me, right. they would have known that I did the job and that I took this pretty much beer league team from South Africa and put them on the field against a uh, uh, Derek Jeter, uh, Alex Rodriguez, Chipper Jones, Roger Clement at all. And uh, we were able to, to compete. Maybe it mm-hmm. wouldn't have happened that quickly. Maybe it still might have happened. Who knows? Nobody mm-hmm. has the answer to those things. But I do think that when, 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 when the stars lined up at that point in my life, uh, it, it was fortuitous. Yes, for sure. Uh yeah, I remember a conversation we had uh, a few years ago, as we did many times at our favorite uh, watering hole there at Stanley's <laughs> Restaurant uh, in the San Fernando Valley. I'll give them a little plug. Yeah, give them um, a plug. Because yeah, they, we'll they, they've had my plug. back for about 20 years over there. <laughs> <laughs> You've got some stock invested there exactly. for sure. For sure, Rick. But, um, you know, you just 
right before I, I switched uh, back to Papago, you you'd said, you know, you've been very fortunate to be where you have and and obviously a 40 year plus career in a game you've loved and, and been passionate about. And it hasn't been easy and all that. But, you, you know, you'd mentioned to me one night we were sitting there talking and, and you said, you know, but baseball doesn't define me. And I always thought that was interesting. You know, I think about that frequently as I go through in my career um, in baseball and and staring at the ceiling some nights wondering, I'm sure like you did many nights, am I doing the right thing? Am I on the right path? Should I be doing something else? So I just wanted you to, you know, maybe tell us a little bit about some of the things that 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 do define you that don't involve baseball or that that are, you know, what's what's, what's Rick Mignante like when he's not on the field or, uh, you know, molding young lives? Well, I mean, I, I just think that, you know, uh, I think your, 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 your statement is correct. I mean, this is what I do for a living in many respects. And this is who I am. But when you say this is who I am, that, that no matter what you're doing, that, that limits who you are. This is just a part of who I am. It's a large part of who I am, but it's not everything about me. And as I manage young players over the years, and I realize that the success ratio might be somewhere between 9 and 10% of those players getting into the big leagues, the lessons to be learned as those players mature in the minor leagues, be it about baseball or off the field, relationships, authority, uh, structure, rules, all those things come into play. And, and, and you're wearing lots of different hats to be able mm-hmm. to do that particular job. So um, I might talk to a player on a given day if that transparency and honesty and trust is there about things on many different levels in his life that may be impacting his career off the field that I might be able mm-hmm. to assist him with because I've kind of been there. I've kind of right. lived it. And so mm-hmm. when you have that kind of credibility and you could build relationships with your players, which is key for me in managing, um, then you can really influence kids' lives, whether it's in the arts, uh, whether it's travel, uh, whether it's hobbies, whether it's activities, to give people an opportunity to see that because these kids are so driven and they've got the blinders on, like we talked about and referenced earlier. They've been in travel ball since they were nine years old. This is the whole deal. They're just moving forward on this one narrow path to this one very difficult goal that they're, re- they're trying to reach. And sometimes the rest of their lives really uh, take a back seat. And as you know, today, if we just take a little step forward, forward many people who spend a lot of their formative years and formative early careers in professional sports are defined by that sport and their personality, who they are is determined by by the press, by whomever. And then when the game is over and they have to redefine who they are and there is no drop down screen or there is no default plan, many young players And truly, they are young. They may be old at 31 years old in the baseball business, but in the real world, they're they're young people just beginning in their careers. They have no plan. They have no route Mm -hmm. with which to take. And it could really set guys back. It could truly set them back. Mm -hmm. That's why I always say to young players, uh, especially the high school kids that, you know, they say, you know, I want to sign right out of high school. 
you got to be a very, very special player to sign and survive out of high school. We, we see them today. For instance, Trout, perfect example. Seamless mm-hmm. segue to the big leagues, prodigy player. Aaron Judge, a little different. Linden High School, small school, big fish in a small pond, finds his way at Fresno State to become maybe the, to, to, to move in that period of time where he needed that development and really wasn't ready to take on professional baseball at 17 years old, his whole story may have changed completely. So all these things factor into your goal to become a big league player, but you need to have other things in your life that that give importance to, whether it's your religion, your family, uh, your, your hobbies, your interests, whatever. You have to be a little bit more abroad in your approach and and see the big picture at a point in your life where all you're really seeing is what's right in front of you. So that transition becomes hard. So if I can show them, I guess, back to answer your question, that there's more to me than the safety squeeze and and whether you're hitting 3-0 or not, that there's more to life and a lot more things to consider. I only think it just helps them get a better feeling for what's out there, what life has to offer, and how they might be better equipped wherever their baseball careers take them to become a complete and a, and a, and a fuller person as they go through life. That's great stuff. Great advice, too. I'm going to just ask a couple quick questions here, and I'll, I'll let you get going. We're coming up on the hour here, and I, I uh, don't want to take all your, your free time away, Rick. Man, I'm just so excited to, to, to get all this uh, um, out of you here. So, Let's just think about this. What would you be doing right now if it weren't for baseball? Let's say uh, this the sport was never invented. Um, would you go back to school uh, and think about what you studied there? What did you study in college, by the way? Yeah, well, I was I went to uh, I was a UC guy, University of California. I graduated from graduated from UCLA in 1970. I was a political science major, so it was liberal arts for me. I mean, I, I think that if it hadn't been baseball. Well, it kind of was. I went into the private sector. I was going to earn. I was going to do something. But the truth of the matter is I didn't know, really know, other than some, I don't want to call them intangible, but but just some basic qualities that I had, whether it was, you know, uh, uh, intelligence, personality, leadership skills, whatever all those were, whatever, however they were going to fit in that private sector, it, it was going to be a, you know, it, it was going to be a, a guess as to what I, what I would do. Um, and so I, I, I don't really know when I look now at what my, what I like to do, uh, you know, I, I like to travel, yeah. you know, I, I, I spend my discretionary dollars on, on traveling and seeing the world and seeing that, you know, it, it's not all about baseball. Right. It really isn't puts air, puts life into perspective and, um, and things of that nature. You know, I don't know musical inclinations. I wasn't an artist, uh, None of that. So it would be very hard for me to say what would have happened. I would have probably continued on in my insurance business to a point where at the time when I actually got into baseball, I I was starting to burn out Mm -hmm. in in, in the business world. It it really wasn't floating my boat. So, again, I was so fortunate that at that point where things were like, you know, right on the right on the edge, the baseball opportunity came into my life. And now I had a choice to do something differently that might change my life. And it did. So I think I was just fortunate 
I know, I know the luck is the residue of design. That's what Ben Franklin said. So, I mean, I was kind of in a design mode. I was doing something, but maybe I would have been a, I guess, a coach, a teacher, uh, something on that level. I think that's the way I would have gone and, and never really being defined by dollars. I'm sure just like in baseball, my lifestyle would have been fine and I would have been able to do the things I like to do, but, but I would have never probably made a lot of money. Right. And I don't see you. And I know we've talked about this, uh, retiring anytime soon, correct? Well, <laughs> I mean, what uh, would you, yeah, what would you do? Uh, right. <laughs> Travel? Well, you know, it, it, I have the, I have the best job in the world. Oh, I'm sure some people feel that about what they're doing as well. People who are truly giving back and making a difference in people's lives. That that's that that's you know that that's a big deal. That's really important. You can put a dollar sign on that. But for who you are and what you're worth and what your legacy will be, that that's that says volumes about who you are. Um, but no, I don't want to retire. And I, when I say I've got the best job in baseball, I, I truly kind of mean that for me. And that I go to spring training in March. Uh, I get excited about the season. I get to compete every day. I get to see kids get better. And I get to play for something, a, a competitive championship every season. But then when I come home in September, I have like five and a half months off. So I'm really kind of retired because I have no baseball responsibilities whatsoever. But my paycheck comes on the 1st and 15th of every month for 12 months. So I, when people go, when are you going to retire? I kind of go, I am retired. I work six I retired. months out of the year. So I kind of yeah. like it the way it is. So sure. as long as I'm able to stay vital, energized, healthy, and really have the, the energy and the passion to give back to the players every year until that subsides or disappears, I'm just going to try to keep doing what I'm doing until I can't do it any longer. Because I have the best of two both worlds, yeah. As it sits right now, I truly do. But and when it's over, mm-hmm. it's over. And you're, and you know, life goes on. Yeah, and you're living your hobby. I mean, you're. I mean, you're. This, you know, people mm-hmm. say like, oh, I, I golf or fish or do all that. Stuff. I, I know you're not either one of those types of individuals. And uh, it seems to me like uh, you've got a great thing going on here. Like you said, you're working six months out of the year doing something that you love to do. Not too many people in the world can say that. You mentioned just a few sentences ago about legacy, and I actually have this down on my sheet because it's getting tossed around the internet a lot. People talking about legacy and, and, uh, you know, what theirs is going to be and whatnot. So real quickly, I mean, what would you like to be remembered for? Well, just, just, just the, uh, what, what I've given back, mm-hmm. what I've been able to share, uh, the influence I've been able to make in people's lives, uh, certainly on the professional level with, with young baseball players, uh, you know, that, that, that I, that I truly cared, um, um, I would like I would like my my headstone to read. He wasn't a big he was he was never a big leaguer except in life. And that would probably be something that I could say was attributable to how I would like to see myself and and be remembered as as a human being uh, who worked in baseball, but had a lot more to offer to to everything and, and everybody that we that he came into contact with. I like that. I like that. You got to get that in your will somewhere, right? So make sure you get that on there. <laughs> make sure that gets carried out. With all the money, with all the money I have right now, I better get a living trust. <laughs> the state is way too big oh, for a simple will. 
<laughs> well, Mags, I tell you, this has been an incredible hour for, for Thank me. You. Thank you. Me um, too. I have really enjoyed it. I could go on and talk to you, as you know, for, for hours. We could, uh, we've always had some great conversations over the years. And I just, I want to point out to the audience too, because I don't know if I'll get a chance to remember to put this into the intro, but for those of that you're out there again, listening to this and, and thinking about getting into baseball as a career, I'm going to tell you coming from me personally, the best thing that I ever did was go seek out a mentor. And Rick was that guy. And he, he knows that because I actually went up to him and asked him to be my mentor. Do you remember that day, Rick? Yeah. I do. And, and I tell you what, a lot of you guys out there listening may think that that's something that, you know, you just kind of fall into. It doesn't happen that way. You know, we all say that there's people in our lives and I have, I've had several other mentors in different parts of my life, whether it was in the military or, or school or, or, or other parts of my life. But in baseball, I didn't have one, you know, I was running a baseball academy and I should point out that the same young individual, the same young man that, um, afforded the opportunity for Rick back in, uh, what was it? The early nineties, you said yeah 90 i want to say like 92 to 93 right there yeah that that guy did go on to uh, uh create uh, several different baseball schools in the southern california area and flash forward a few years to 97 98 i happened to be one of the um guys that that joined that, uh, that academy and became an owner of one of those schools and got to stand in front of the same guy that gave Rick the opportunity and was able to get my foot into the door and start uh, a baseball career as an instructor and as a, as an academy owner. Um, but my point was again, that, uh, uh, Rick and I were introduced a few years uh, later, not much later after that. And being living in the same area in Sherman Oaks and uh, being around the same kids in the same schools, we, we, we developed a friendship and, uh, you know, obviously through baseball and, and through our love of uh, fine wines at Stanley's <laughs> restaurant one more time on Ventura Boulevard. And, <laughs> and uh, it, you know, it just occurred to me, I said, you know what, this would be a great opportunity for me to find somebody who's been down the road that I want to go down, who's got some years on me that has, you know, walked the walk and, and been through the ups and downs. And I just remember I decided I, I told my wife one day, I said, I'm, I'm going to ask Rick if, if he, you know, would be my mentor. And, uh, of course, you know, my wife supported the idea and said, well, why wouldn't you? And I remember that just very, very vividly because it ha it was something that I probably wouldn't be here today, Rick, if it weren't for, for that. And for you, not only just teaching me and guiding me in the ways of the, you know, the, the way the game is with scouting and with coaching and, you know, the advice you've given me and at being, you know, at the time I was uh, late thirties saying, Hey, you got a family now. It's a little bit different than, you know, being a 25 year old. So you guys that are listening again, don't be afraid to find someone that you admire and that you um, are looking up to in, in the field and ask them just, Go up and add, I guarantee you, um, they they will be at least at the very least um, excited that you you sought them out. You know they might not be able to help you, but you don't know until you ask, right? I think I think that's great advice, Nick. I, I just think like in everything in life, if you're waiting for it to happen, you're going to be waiting. If you're mm -hmm. if you're doing something proactively and making a difference to change your life, uh, we all have to step out. We all have to. See if we can do it. It's, it's one thing to talk about. It's one thing to think about it. But, but it's always in life, it, it, it's about actions. Actions define you. And, and if you do what you say you will do in life, then your honesty, your integrity, and at least the opportunity to achieve your goals will be served. 
But to sit on the sidelines and wish and hope, mm-hmm. hope is not a strategy. Nope, not a good game I hope, plan. I hope the phone's going to ring. That's right. Many times in the game, when I was out of the game, I thought, I'll get some calls. And the reality is you're not on the tip of people's tongues unless you put yourself there. Right. And that's because you have to be able to generate energy and be effective in going toward what it is that you want to do in life. Otherwise, you know, you'll you'll take a back seat. That's right. You will take a back seat. So, again, like Nick was saying, stay proactive. Don't be afraid to ask questions and see if you can truly be a part of that process rather than being uh, the object of what you think somebody else might want. You have to create that environment for yourself and let people know what you want to do. So mm-hmm. those words are that you gave them in terms of how to go about it, no matter what the field of endeavor is, will certainly benefit you in, on your career path. Absolutely. I, I agree 100%. And, uh, you know, no, none of us are self-made. You have to have help along the way. And there's got to be someone there that um, that you believe is, um, is going to help you out that you reach out to. If you don't do it, you know, just like you said, Rick, it's not going to happen. You, you can't be reactive. You got to be proactive. Exactly. And, uh, anyway, so, well, look, uh, this has been fantastic. As I mentioned, I'm, I'm so excited that we were able to sit down and do this. I look forward to hopefully seeing you after the new year, buddy. Okay. Um, looking to make a trip down to LA and uh, would love to, to hook up with you. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to my interview today with uh, Rick Mignante from the Oakland A's. And uh, we will be getting together here in a couple of weeks for another episode. Until then, uh, keep your nose to the grindstone out there, guys. Make sure you're lifting up other every single rock, meeting people. Don't be afraid to shake hands and meet guys. Go to baseball games. Watch baseball games. Get involved in your community if you have to. you got to start somewhere. But if this is something that you really want to do, uh, it's out there for you. And uh, Rick and I are both living proof that uh, you can most definitely make a living. May not be rich, but you can make a living doing something that you love to do. Right, Rick? That's exactly true. (laughs) Okay, guys. Have a great day, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, Rick. I'll talk to you soon, buddy. Okay, thanks, Nick. See you soon. Happy holidays. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey there, Nick Holmes again. Just wanted to say thank you very much for listening to Love the Game, Live the Dream, brought to you by World Baseball Experience. And if you get a second, please head over to worldbaseballexperience.com and put your email address in there, subscribe to our free newsletter. It's not really a newsletter. It's just me collecting your email address so that I can send you uh, updates and new podcast information, maybe some photos and things like that. But don't worry, I don't have the time to spam anybody. So I promise that uh, I'll only be sending you quality information. (laughs) Well, maybe not so much quality, but entertaining nonetheless. If you enjoyed today's episode, please pass it on to all of your seamhead friends out there, your baseball enthusiasts. If you didn't like this episode, then you're probably not still listening. So I appreciate your time. And once again, this is Nick Holmes signing off. We'll see you next time on Love the Game, Live the Dream. Take care. (laughs) 